0: From WFIU in Bloomington, Indiana, I'm Kate Young,
1: and this is Earth Eats. And so I really love to be able to see how other BIPOC farmers in the community are doing good with the land.
0: This week on the show, we talk with recipients of a fellowship that brings BIPOC farmers together to build community in Monroe County, Indiana. The farmers also receive funding for farm projects. We talk about what the fellowship has meant for the three farmers and how they'll put the funds to use, enhancing our local food system this season. That's just ahead, stay with us. Thanks for listening to Earth Eats. I'm Kate Young. If you're a regular listener to this show, or if you grow food yourself, you probably understand that farming is hard. The physical labor can be difficult, yes, but also the planning. And working with natural elements like weather and pests and disease, all of which are unpredictable, makes planning anything a huge challenge. And even when everything goes right, the profit margins for farming are always slim. I think it's safe to say that most small-scale farmers aren't getting rich growing food. For young farmers and beginning farmers, there are plenty of barriers to getting started. For Black, Indigenous, and farmers of color, there are often even more hurdles to overcome. For one, like with any profession, if you don't see people who look like you doing this work it can be hard to imagine yourself into that role. If you don't have inherited land or wealth, or if you didn't grow up on a farm, you're starting at a disadvantage. And all of this is more likely to be the case for BIPOC folks due to settler colonial practices and slavery in the distant past, and discrimination and structural racism in the recent past and present, experienced across the nation and right here in Indiana. The Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition is an organization of young farmers and food advocates who work to recruit, support, and promote young and beginning farmers throughout Indiana in an effort to make our food systems more localized, sustainable, and just. In recent years, they've offered a fellowship for beginning farmers. Here's founder and former board president Liz Brownling talking about how the fellowship has evolved.
2: This was year three of running the fellowship for beginning farmers in Indiana. And this year, the fellowship was specifically in Monroe County. The point of the fellowship is to bring together beginning farmers who are um, ready for some big step forward on their farms, but need some capital and some community. So we invite people to apply who have shown that they have a a working business model, their farm is functioning, but then they have some big investment that they want to do. They need to add cold storage, they want to expand their orchard, they need a wash pack area, they want to hire their first employee, etc. And they have some big thing they need to do to take a step forward on their farm. So the fellowship gives them that. It gives them a sense of community, they get time with other beginning farmers that are similar stages, and uh, it gives them capital. So each fellow gets... $4,500 to invest in their farm and um, time and money to, to spend with the other fellows to learn together and commiserate and celebrate together.
0: Yeah. So how does that part work? Like, how do
2: you connect the farmers with each other? So the first two years we ran the fellowship was during COVID and so it was all virtual. So it was like virtual farmer Zoom meetings and boy, that was less than perfect. (laughs) So listening to the farmer's input, they said, we really want time together in person, but you can't do that very easily as a statewide program. So we started being on the lookout for some place where we could do this on a regional scale. So the farmers would be within an hour drive of each other. And uh, the city of Bloomington actually reached out and said, hey, we've got some money. Would you run your fellowship here for BIPOC farmers? So black, indigenous, and people of color farmers. And we said, yeah, that sounds great. (laughs) That fits our goals. That fits your goals. That's going to serve the farmers. And so this year, the way it worked was, they had a kickoff retreat where they went out to dinner together and got started getting to know each other. And then three visits, a visit to each of their farms where they led a tour of their farm just for the other fellows and our fellowship coordinator sharing what they're working on, what's going well, what they're struggling with, how they're going to take big leaps forward on their farms this year. And then they'll have a wrap up retreat at the very end. It's just the winter and spring, about five interactions. It's relatively condensed because farmers are busy people. And so we wanted it to be in the off season when they had the most time. And we wanted to get the capital in their hands at the start of the season so they could invest in what they needed to right away. The first two years we ran the fellowship, we had a certain number of seats set aside for BIPOC and women farmers. And we wanted to ensure that there was representation and also space for those underserved farmers and so when the city of Bloomington reached out they said we want you to run a round of the fellowship only for BIPOC farmers. We thought that was such a good idea because having a BIPOC majority space is really powerful to have in-depth conversations and yeah we were thrilled. The very first step we took was to hire BIPOC farmers as consultants about the fellowship program because we'd run it for two years but as a statewide program and we didn't want to come in as a bunch of white folks saying, here's how to run a program that's going to fit BIPOC farmers. And so we asked these BIPOC farmers for input about everything from the application process and the description of the opportunity to the selection process for the fellows, you know, how are we going to judge the applicants to the how do we make a safe space for BIPOC farmers. In actual, who are selected for the fellowship in the actual interactions. And that was so helpful. So an example of something we learned, in the past we had had fellows create a short video highlighting how they had utilized the fellowship experience to build their farm and and help it move forward. And we were told really clearly, you know, not everybody wants to be on video and not everybody wants to have to do that work. And so are there other options? Can we have some more decision-making power about how we share out about our fellowship experience. And we said, yeah, that's that's a great idea. We hadn't even thought of that. And that's a blind spot. And it does relate to race because being in charge of how your image is used, how your progress is portrayed, that's really important. The other example I'd give is in the past, we had had a selection committee for our fellowship that used a general rubric, just basic, do you feel like this person's application reflects the the goals of the fellowship. But the consultants that we worked with were really adamant that that needed to be much more specific and objective because bias, whether implicit or explicit, happens. And so we needed to remove that opportunity for bias and make the review process more objective. And that's going to strengthen the fellowship overall. You also paid the consultants, is that correct? Oh, yeah, for sure. Because so, so often... Farmers, and especially farmers of color, are asked to give input or to serve on committees so that there's representation, which is great, except time is valuable and it could be used to build their farm business or work in their off-farm jobs, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're working really hard to pay farmers for their time and their expertise at every juncture. We hired Shauna Poveda, who's a member of the farming community. She's an indigenous farmer, and she has a company called Medicine Miha. And she's a grad student who's learning a ton about how you convene people. And so it's a really neat fit to be the fellowship coordinator. And so Shauna is gathering these folks on a regular basis and putting them in touch and ensuring they get their money on time, all, all the back end stuff that's needed to have the fellowship work, and it's just going so smoothly having her at the home. We're really grateful for Shauna.
0: That was Liz Brownlee, founder and former president of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition. She was talking about this year's Beginning Farmer Fellowship for BIPOC farmers in Monroe County, Indiana. After a short break, we'll talk with one of the recipients of the fellowship, Nick Garza of Outlier Farmstead. Stay with us. Kate Young here, this is Earth Eats. I first visited Outlier Farmstead in the summer of 2020, their first year. It was a strange year to be starting anything. Nick Garza and his partner Marie O'Neill and I talked about getting fresh food to people during a pandemic and about their view that farming is political, even if people don't always think about it that way. This spring, I headed back out to their farm in southwest Bloomington to talk about the beginning farmer fellowship that Nick Garza received, along with Ash Tang and Enrique Hernandez, who we'll talk with later in the program. We started with a mini tour of Outlier Farmstead. A lot had changed in three years.
3: We just got done putting lots of lettuce out and some leeks. We're about to put tomatoes out into our tunnel, uh, which feels remarkable for April 9th or 10th or so. Today's the big transplanting day.
0: You have a lot of fields planted. This is amazing. Yeah. They have several high tunnel structures that weren't here when I visited in 2020. They received assistance from the EQUIP program through the Natural Resource Conservation Service, or NRCS, to purchase high tunnels and for some native plantings on the farm. We approached one of the tunnels, which consists of a metal framework covered with translucent plastic and tall enough that you can walk through them. This tunnel
3: is kind of has something interesting going on to it. I guess we can walk to a better vantage point. We're collaborating with Purdue on some kind of crop research trials. Our researcher that we're working with, Wenjing, is very interested in strawberry production and and wanted to um, see how that can be applicable to really small farms. And so we're Working on this project with her, we planted out maybe five or six different varieties of strawberry in this tunnel. Uh, They're all doing really well. We have they lots look of fruit really good. Yeah, we have lots of fruit already, and that that seems remarkable for April as yeah. well.
0: I have talked to Wenjing before about a cucumber grafting project that she did with Candice Minster at the in Terre Haute at the White Violet Center. Her <laughs> her name is familiar to me from that. So that's awesome. That's so great that you're working with her. Do, yeah. you, do you how do you like doing like research?
3: I love it. We we think it's really kind of conducive to our farm, especially the like we're. We're definitely a part-time farm. None of this is a full-time commitment and so we feel like we can take those we can take extra time to, to dedicate more to abstract things like research rather than always being to the knuckles about planting and weeding and harvesting and all that. So that's nice. Uh, some farmers don't have the time for it or it just doesn't work with their model, but um, we're happy to do it. We're working um, also on cucurbit trials with Wenjing, and we're talking about designing projects to test ginger and turmeric cultivars in high tunnels, and we're doing a couple of research trials for johnny seeds, trialing new varieties that they haven't yet seen, how they perform in our area. Stuff like that, It is easy, especially uh, it was really difficult at first to kind of pin down like an organizational structure to, to manage things like that, but w- once we kind of got that, figured it out it's really easy it comes naturally, I think
0: it sounds fun to me, like just interesting
3: definitely yeah yeah i I feel like we've learned a lot, and we would have never planted out strawberries in in this type of culture before and it's been really rewarding so far yeah. so
4: It also taught us, I think, that we were giving up on summer squash at the time before we talked to Wenjing, and then she asked us to grow summer squash with cucumbers, and the summer squash was actually really successful that year. So it was nice to see. It was like, oh, there are ways that we could manage summer squash, because all the bugs went to the the cucumbers first. It was unfortunate for the cucumbers, but then the summer squash did better. So there was a a carport
0: tunnel as well that you tried? There's
4: a
3: couple more steps, and and we can take a look at it we have figs planted in in that which is really exciting and we definitely struggled with this spring warming up too early it kind of caused the plants to produce some very vulnerable tissue very early and then it dipped back down in March and then and then they suffered some damage from that so it's less than ideal but but the idea is that in, in the greenhouse they'll be trained like a grape on a cordon, a horizontal trunk that will go along the length of the tunnel and along that cordon we'll expect shoots to come up and pop up along it and then we can train those shoots up towards the top of the tunnel. We went to Maine this past late summer and that was our first time in the northeast and they have such a fascinating kind of culture about fruits and just like weird farming. We were really enamored by it, and so we decided that we wanted to plant an apple orchard up on that uh, north-facing slope up there. We've ordered 300 apple rootstock that are currently at Darren's in in Paoli, waiting for us to to come and get them and plant them. So that'll be another undertaking that we're taking, taking on this year.
0: Wow, 300. That's a lot of digging. (laughs)
3: yeah yeah luckily we have we have access to a a tractor with an auger so hopefully i've never used it before but hopefully that'll make it go faster smart (laughs) yeah
0: that's great that sounds fun yeah
3: this tunnel will be planted to tomatoes that we grafted earlier in the year we have maybe 25 out of 70 survived the the grafting process so we're excited to see how they do in there, and then we have we have lots more tomatoes to put outside too.
0: So the grafting is part of the research with Purdue.
3: No, the grafting is actually just an independent project. Wow. Um, although wow. I I I, had, I talked to Wenjing about it, seemingly too late because she told me she she was like, oh, you should have told me that I did my like doctoral thesis on grafting tomatoes. Wow. And I thought, wow, that would have been yeah, that would have been helpful. Maybe we would have had more than 25 survive.
0: So what is the, what's the objective behind the grafting? Like what are you grafting it to?
3: So tomato breeders work hard to develop these tomato rootstocks, which would be the the bottom part that the top part is grafted onto. And, and the idea of grafting is that you can focus in, in your breeding work on developing things like resistance to soil-borne diseases or vigor in the rootstock and then devote time to fruiting characteristics and marketability and storage and the top scion cultivar and so you can kind of mesh those two worlds together by literally splicing them and shoving them on, on together and they took and it worked and we'll see I guess how they how they stand up to one another we're, we're doing it mostly for added vigor we don't have many soil-borne diseases that we know of yet and that we would be trying to avoid if we can check out the greenhouse we we kind of added a greenhouse in the past year. It's funny because now that we have it, I can't really imagine what we would have done if we didn't have it at this point. It was almost immediately full in the beginning of March. So we were able to turn this into a a greenhouse space. This used to be a very dilapidated structure. We had to kind of take the roof off and then redo it.
0: This is great. Is it heated? It's
3: not heated, it's pretty drafty. And so we kind of gave up on the goal of heating it, but we made one heated table that oh, we okay. um, looped a gutter heating cable through some sand and kind of this like wooden tub on legs. It can keep the soil up to a good enough temperature when it, when it gets really cold. And so it's worked almost flawlessly and it was yeah. probably $150 to make.
0: Yeah, so you've got a lot of things started already.
3: Yeah, we've got Mm -hmm. parsley, and we're trying um, celery again this year, and some romaine, gingers back there sprouting, tomatoes in the back corner, green onions. feels really good to get trays out of here. There were trays all along these barrels, and these tables were full, and this thing was full, and just that slog of getting everything out.
0: So do you want to tell me a little bit about the... Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition fellowship program that you're a part of?
3: Sure. So, in maybe early winter last year, Hoosier Young Farmer Coalition announced that there would be a fellowship program that was targeting specifically BIPOC farmers in Monroe County, Indiana. And when I saw that was announced, I'd like four or five names ran through my head, and I was like, oh, I bet. I, I'm sure I'll get it if I apply for it, and, and that, that was the case. And I, I know uh, Enrique and Ash, and that was kind of a funny thing that, that I talked about with them when, when we first met up, just that we all had a couple of names in mind that we figured it could be. And the fellowship's goal is to kind of paste us all together for a certain amount of hours, and we'll kind of alternate giving farm tours at, on each other's projects and get together for some group meetups building community, showing each other what we're up to, and there's a stipend or a reward along with it of $4,500 that that goes towards just any kind of project on your farm. I think that we would use it to build a larger walk-in cooler space, uh, and that would kind of give us some wiggle room in, in terms of scheduling harvest days. This year, we're able to hire a couple of people, and. I'm hoping that that will be really great for us. I, I cannot imagine having extra help here. We, we've, we've definitely held off on hiring people because we, we feel really, um, I guess, passionately about paying well, and we've not really been in, in a position to pay well until this year. And, and certainly some of, the, some of the funds will also go to that.
0: And you said you were uh, wanting to have a bigger walk-in cooler space. Do you have a walk-in cooler space now?
3: yeah it's very small it it might be eight by four feet um and it's been we're also limited by the size of our cars we don't have a truck we have two sedans one is a prius which is more than a sedan but but still um and the walk-in cooler that we have now seems to match our cars so we can take like that amount of produce but i feel like if we get the larger walk-in cooler we can take more trips or maybe even get a truck later to to haul more things.
4: And then it would be nice because we could use the other space for storage crops. You know, being able to keep the two spaces at different temperatures would allow us to to keep things in storage longer because we don't have a space really for storage. So
0: you mean things like winter squash or potatoes or something like that? Is that what you mean by storage crops? Mm
4: -hmm. Definitely, yeah.
0: Or those apples when they, <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. That definitely. That, that's that was, a long way off, but yeah.
3: Yeah. Well, the so the rootstock that we have are dwarfing rootstocks that are meant to they're precocious and so they're meant to fruit at you know year three or four, oh, cool. and so that that was a serious consideration in deciding on the walk-in cooler because it, it figured at our rate of planting we could have thousands of pounds of of apples that we would have to store over winter. I'm glad to do it, but we definitely need the space.
0: So a lot of of plans and also just so many things that have happened in the past couple of years. Where are you currently selling or where does your produce end up going?
3: We sell mostly, almost exclusively with People's Market. People's Market just got access to an LFPA grant, a local food purchasing assistance grant that was, I think, a part of the climate bill that was passed earlier in the year, last year. And that kind of unlocked a lot of funding for hooking up underserved communities with local food, helping purchase food from farmers at a fair price. And so that's the grant that we're most working with this year. And that's been positive because we've been able to receive some payment up front. And that had always been a challenge to work with the whole invoicing system of not getting paid until two to four weeks after you deliver on produce. So it's definitely been a, a good way for us to build wealth to be able to afford things like hiring people or or maybe buying a truck or a walk-in cooler if we hadn't gotten this grant.
0: Have you been able to work with Mother Hubbard's Cupboard at all with providing food?
3: Yeah, yeah, definitely. They have a wonderful program as well that, that we're a part of. I don't know if it has a fun acronym, but they are forming relationships with local farms in or near town, giving them $2,000 sort of a capital investment for the farm, which is great. And then they're committing to purchasing, I think it's 5000 or maybe $7,000 worth of produce from the farm over the course of the year. Wow. And it's a really great program. We've, we've been working with them on that for two. This will be our third year. Lots of flexibility very awesome to have another day to be able to draw produce off somewhere. Last year we kind of looped that in with People's Market and People's Market has become sort of a distribution system and it does have a farmers market but they put a lot of work into just distributing the food and so we would, last year we would bring produce on on Friday or Saturday and, and they would take it to Mother Hubbard's and that would be factored into that original grant.
0: Nice. Nice. Yeah,
3: it it was really great that they could and we could work together on that.
0: I remember talking to you before, and you really wanting to find a way for the food that you grow to not just go to those who can pay the the price that it costs to grow good food. Yeah.
3: <laughs> you know? Yeah, and that's definitely a core value. There are plenty of farms that can that can you know, cater towards that demographic of people and that demographic of people seems very well, well catered to already.
0: It was, it's also interesting to hear that the fellowship with the Hoosier Young Farmers, it wasn't just about a stipend. It was really also about building community among farmers and among farmers of color in, in this area.
3: Yeah. Yeah. And that's been really great. I, I, I knew, Shauna, Enrique, and uh, Ash, peripherally, kind of. We were on the edges of the same circle for a while, but it's been nice to, to get to talk to them and see what they're up to. And I, I love just getting to see other people's projects and, and just because it, it really is just a manifestation of the way that they they think. So it, it's very interesting to get tours of, of farms, especially, I think, when, when you're a farmer, there's like a Undercurrent that, that you can feel when when that happens. That's been great, and we've also been able to talk and share experiences about you know what it, what it means to be a farmer of color and and just experiences that we've had that that might pertain to that. And that's been that's been nice to to hear as well.
0: And it seems like you know like you said you knew them peripherally and you might have wanted to get together, but having something where it's like oh this is part of the program where where we have structured time that we're supposed to spend together it makes it you know, it's going to happen.
3: Yeah, 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 definitely, especially when in the spring when, when things can be so busy. Yeah. It's helpful to have those those chunks of time blocked off for you in a way.
0: We talked about the consultants that the Hoosier Young Farmers had hired and how that contributed to the design of the program.
3: It's interesting because I, I think as a um, person of color, it, it, it can be tricky to look at programs that are designed for people of color and I struggle to perceive them not as performative things and so it's hard for me to perceive them as, as you know, genuine, helpful things and that's probably the case with lots of things that fall under affirmative action. And so that was definitely something that I struggled with at first. It, it seemed to me to, to be something that was performative in, in nature but I, th- I think going into it that kind of dissolved and I was able to... And talk to other members about that and you know it seems like other people have those kind of internal conflicts as well. I think being in it that it it is well designed it, it seems like a, a respectful program that asks not much of each participant. It's been a positive experience entirely thus far and so I'll, I'll give props to the people that, that designed it. Uh, I, I think it, it's it's well maintained and they they hired a person specifically to kind of coordinate it. And I think that that was another valuable piece of the program working smoothly is having having a dedicated person kind of manage it. And I'm not sure if it was that way in the past. Do
0: you want to see the chickens? I do want to see the chickens. I always want to see the chickens. When I came before, I think you had just gotten them recently and you were really thrilled with them.
4: (laughs) (laughs) That's true. I'm always thrilled with them.
0: So that hasn't worn off?
4: No. Well, not the chickens personally, but being a chicken owner, it's worn off a little bit. You know, we had 30 birds at one point, and now we have 15. And we didn't eat any of those.
0: (laughs) Somebody might have, but not you guys. (laughs) Some animal, Mm -hmm. I'm guessing. I love how they're all different kinds. Mm-hmm. Look at this one waddling over with its
4: oh yeah fuzzy feet. That's a salmon favrel. They're the cutest chickens in the world, I think. They're my favorite.
0: I think that one's really pretty with the brown and black.
3: She's the kindest one. <laughs> she'll she'll come up to you and peck at you and hop into your arms.
0: That was Nick Garza and Marie O'Neill of Outlier Farmstead in Bloomington, Indiana. Nick is one of three recipients of this year's Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition Beginning Farmer Fellowship. After a short break, we'll speak with the other two recipients, Ash Tang and Enrique Hernandez. Stay with us. This is Earth Eats, I'm Kate Young. We've been talking about the Beginning Farmer Fellowship, awarded by the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition. This year, they partnered with the City of Bloomington to offer fellowships specifically to BIPOC farmers in Monroe County, Indiana. We spoke with Nick Garza out at Outlier Farmstead, and I invited the other two fellowship recipients into the studio to learn more about their work and to hear about how they plan to use the funds. I started by asking each of them to describe their farming practice.
1: Hi Kate, thanks for having me. My name is Ash Teng. I am a farmer, grower, a also tea crafter and food product development person. All things food and plants and the the earth really. And the name of mine and my partner's farm is called Bread and Roses Gardens. It's three-acre, no-till forest farm surrounded by the huge National Forest. And I also have the herbal tea line, which is called Blossom and the Bee Tea and Botanicals, where we create um, all kinds of botanical products as well. So that's including skin oils, salves, flower bath teas as well. So it's really awesome to be able to not only focus on the food products, but be able to do the herbal products and the medicinal products as well.
5: Hello, my name is Enrique Hernandez, and I am a grower, farmer, artist, entrepreneur. And just this last year, I, alongside an acre of vegetables, got a license to grow hemp. And so I have been pivoting towards working with the cannabis plant in general as like a medicinal product and as a potential like fiber product. It's just very aligned with the practices that I was into about organic farming, about growing something that sequesters carbon from the environment and adds benefit to the people. The laboratory that I started to process it is called Official Extracts and I am still currently partnering on the farming, growing with Mavernine Farms.
0: Yeah, so you're both recipients of the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition Fellowship this year. And this year they specifically focused on Monroe County and on BIPOC farmers. And I was wondering if you could each talk about your experience with that. I know that there's a stipend that goes with it, and then there's also kind of a community part of it. So first, if we could just hear about how it might help you in developing your farm project at this time?
5: First, I want to say I'm extremely grateful for the Hoosier Young Farmers Fellowship. I've been using it really to jumpstart my business. I just moved into a lab space to process all the hemp. So the equipment's expensive and rental fees, marketing fees, just bringing awareness to the brand. So it's been a really big help just to jumpstart. And I think that a lot of the times is what's missing. is just that initial push to get over that hump, to have enough product to at least start doing it part time to make it uh, worth your time. And yeah, hopefully to grow this BIPOC community, small farm community, people that are more interested in growing crops other than corn and soy and bringing bringing their culture into the Bloomington culture as well. It's, it's cool that they're focusing on BIPOC growers. My experience with growing up here in Bloomington is that there isn't a lot of BIPOC growers in the direct area. And so it's a, it was also kind of a part of my mission to kind of bring camaraderie around growing food, maybe as a BIPOC person, share resources, share experience and knowledge. Because I do know people that want to do it, and it sounds great, but they don't know where to start, they don't know where to access land. It's a lot of work, it's really competitive.
0: And Ash, can you talk about the fellowship and what it's helping you with this season?
1: Yeah. Yeah, again, super grateful to be one of the recipients for the Huju Young Farmers Fellowship this year. It's been really awesome to meet and hang out with Enrique and Nick and Shana and just share ideas and share what's been working for us and share our experiences because farming is a really tough industry to thrive in and we could use all the help we could get. And I think that's why it's really important to also... Give a little push to buy but farmers in this area who have been, you know, marginalised in history and it's important to give that support back and I'm excited to be able to invest more into our business. This year, one of the things that we really wanted to do with some of the grant money is to gets FDA certification on food processing. So one of the certifications is called the Better Processing School and it's quite a high-priced certification to get. So there's a lot of barriers and I think that's why not many farmers or many other businesses can go ahead because it's quite a high-priced one. So with this grant, we're really... Or looking forward to be able to complete that FDA approved certification and that means I'll be able to process more goods into canned goods and sell those canned goods in lots of different retail locations as it will follow all the safety requirements of the FDA. So that's a really great part of being able to invest in and use that money for normally Expensive certification and be able to expand our business through that, and hopefully it will mean that we we'll, we get to have some of our products on more shelves in the local area and have additional revenue streams. Really, and that's important in being able to farm full time is to be able to make sure not only are we doing what we, we we believe in, but also what is profitable because you need to find that good balance of what is profitable and and what you believe in at the same time. So hopefully doing this will help us enable us to farm full-time and keep doing this nourishing work. I would love to hear a little bit more
0: about what is involved in value-added goods in terms of what you're able to do from a home kitchen or you know from a farm-based kitchen. I know that Indiana has particular laws around home-based vendors and you know where you can sell and what you know what you have to have if you're not using a commercial kitchen. And so you're talking about the FDA certification that you're looking at might expand what you're able to do and where you're able to sell your products. But what is
1: the current situation for your the products that you make? Originally, we started as home-based vendors, so in 2020 that was my first season here in indiana growing and we had a lot of time to be at home and create delicious goods because it was the start of covid and so we were originally home-based vendors but that meant we could only sell at farmers markets roadside stands or direct to consumer and We did that for the first couple years and realized that there was this demand for kimchi, hot sauce, really great teas and tinctures. And so we wanted to build up on that and just have enough for the demand in the community. So we rented commissary kitchens so that we could have that commercial kitchen license and be able to sell in retail locations as well. So that has been a really great step in being able to increase that revenue already. But at the moment, we're limited to the food items that we can make. So we're not allowed to can things in a commercial kitchen without doing that FDA certification. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the next step into us being able to expand and and grow with the business is to complete that certification and then hopefully being able to have jams on the shelf as well
0: yeah i was just going to say so you can you can make jam and you can sell it yes and you could can it and sell it at a roadside stand or a farmer's market or direct to consumer but you couldn't sell that retail right because even commercial kitchen canned products you can't sell them in a retail space
1: no without no.
0: this extra certification
1: exactly it's exactly. okay
0: that's thank you for that clarification yeah, of i course. appreciate that and enrique i was curious about i hadn't thought about the processing that might be involved in a hemp crop and so i would love to hear a little bit about that
5: yeah so processing hemp into cbd specifically in indiana it's a lot more of a task than I thought at first. So it requires a license to process. And then it requires expensive equipment that is all priced as like laboratory equipment. So even though it's simple technologies such as distillation and evaporation, they're to do it right, they're in these like very high-end glassware that you can only buy from scientific websites. The simple answer is you pretty much can mix this plant with ethanol, extract it all through the ethanol, and then you put it through a rotary evaporation process, which is pretty much pulling a vacuum and spinning at the same time so that all of the ethanol boils off and you're left with just plant fats, lipids all of the plant's cannabinoids or whatever their medicinal compounds are. And then from there, you have this crude wax, which tastes extremely bitter. So to make it more consumable, you have to further distill the lipids and the chlorophylls out so that it's more a smoother taste. And this all takes several weeks where you really have to be watching the whole process. And these pieces of equipment can go for a few thousand dollars to like hundreds of thousands of dollars. So it's really, I'm very thankful to have a business partner that is a chemist. So we've been able to work around certain challenges, save costs, and just try to keep the process as simple as possible. What we're focused on is creating an extremely simple whole plant product that is as true to its live fingerprint as possible which means doing things at low temperatures, doing things in as, as little steps as possible. And yeah, honestly, not processing it too much. So it will be a little bit bitter, but it's also, it's a plant. And another thing that the fellowship is really helping with that Ash mentioned is that whole retail sales. So in order to, for me to put these products in stores, it requires a very expensive product liability insurance. So, in the past, I was selling vegetables to Blooming Foods, and I even got some products into Lucky's Market when it was open, and that was $200 a year for me to sell microgreens and mushrooms and stuff. And with hemp products, because everyone wants to make money off of this industry, it's 10 times as expensive for me to have product liability insurance. So, it really limits where I can sell it. So that's just another thing. The fellowship's really helping break down these barriers so that we can increase our revenue streams and and keep doing this.
0: Hemp only became a legal crop in Indiana in 2018. I asked Enrique about the regulations and the legal challenges that come with growing hemp.
5: Yeah, it's certainly been a long process, a bit of a roller coaster, to do all the paperwork and jump through all the hoops and pay all the fees. And the lawmakers don't really understand the product or what the farmers have to go through. And they just kind of say, oh, well, here's all the rules. This is how you have to do it. And they're learning since it's only been Mm -hmm. five years in total. And I think that the commercial license opened up in 2020. So there's only really been two to three growing seasons that have been open to the public. So... For example, this the 0.3% THC limit is something that people just created out of nowhere. And a lot of times the, even the hemp plant wants to go anywhere from like 04 to 1% THC. So what happened to a lot of farmers in Indiana is that they grew this really beautiful medicinal crop and they were forced to burn it all or destroy it.
0: Yeah, I had heard that.
5: Yeah, and so... Another like part of that is kind of the anxiety that comes with being a bipoc person and trying to navigate all of these laws and with the police and the lawmakers not really understanding what they're even doing. Yeah, so it's been it's been an interesting experiment and once again I just I have to be thankful for the support. There's a hemp council that's very supportive and connected with lawmakers and continually pushing.
0: That sounds so frustrating to pass the law that allows it, but then make it so hard to do it. Just mostly it sounds like out of ignorance, like not taking the time to actually find out how this might actually work. So the other piece of the fellowship of just fellowship with each other, like connecting a cohort of farmers in the area to get together to share resources or share information or just build community. And I would love to hear your thoughts about that and why you think it's important.
1: I've really enjoyed actually being able to visit the other fellows' farms. And it's just really great to see all the different ways that you can be farming, depending on the land you're on, depending on what crops you're growing. And so I really love to be able to see how other BIPOC farmers in the community are doing good with the land. We had a really awesome dinner together at the beginning as as one of our Hujuyang Farmers Fellowship retreats. We got to sit over some really great farm-to-table food and just connect and enjoy food together. And honestly, that is one of the things that brings me so much joy and is a big part of Farming is being able to connect with other farmers and share good food together, ultimately.
5: I just think it's really cool to develop these relationships that go farther than, oh, I know who you are, I know what you're doing, and like spend some time eating together, spend some time at each other's properties, and hopefully have these relationships last far into the future. And invite new people that are interested into this, this sub-community that's now being created because of the fellowship. And I hope that other farmers, beginning farmers, small farmers, BIPOC farmers can see that there is support and a place to go to learn more and to get connected because that's really how I got started. I got taken in by the farmers at the farmer's market and they said, oh, you need to meet this person. You need to meet that person. They're great. So yeah, I mean that's that's really what what it takes as a community.
0: And do you feel like that kind of thing maybe is either missing or can be more challenging for farmers of color in a, in a community in the Midwest? I mean, it sounds like you had a positive experience of sharing resources and information, inviting you in, but I have heard from other farmers in Indiana, black farmers in Indianapolis saying, socially there's a community of white farmers who are sharing all these resources and i'm outside of that and so how do i build something else or you know connect with that and so you know i've just heard that as sort of a barrier or this is one of the ways that racially there's an inequity at times in the farming community
5: yeah i mean i've certainly felt that the whole time and entering into farming i was like oh what am i going to do like go up to a random white person's farm and ask them for help and they're going to tell me to get off their land you know so i felt very nervous to approach it at the start but thankfully there are really special people here i mean i heard about what salem and jonas were doing while i was in college and so that was like a great start for me to reach out to them they're doing permaculture so it's not large-scale farming and just entering into that those two people's social sphere and then expanding on there and they said oh you know we our friend Bobby is great you need to meet her and you need to meet this person and that person and then you you start to find the people that are really welcoming and that's also a big reason why I want to continue farming to be a person that people can come up to and ask for help and relate to when uh, they might not feel that way towards everybody else and just keep building this group of like-minded individuals that want to support each other.
1: Yeah, totally. It can definitely feel quite isolating as a BIPOC farmer in the Midwest, in Indiana. And so it's really awesome to be able to connect yeah, and share our experiences with, with other BIPOC folks who are doing the same thing and wanting to thrive, because it is hard to thrive as a as a farmer, full stop, that it's, it's hard and you have to find your niche and what works for you to maintain that and to make it a sustainable business. And so I think having this fellowship and being able to share our knowledge hopefully invites more people from the, the community to See, actually, I can do this. And yeah, there is this supportive network of BIPOC farmers here that are doing it already. And there is room for more. Mm. And we want to invite more BIPOC folks, small, uh, smaller farmers, socially disadvantaged people to know that there is a way to farm and make a living out of it and thrive.
5: My biggest surprise, it wasn't just the fellowship, but just in general. Bring my attention to the BIPOC farming community and the size of it. And yeah, that was just surprising to me to to learn that, yeah, maybe we do know all of the BIPOC farmers in Bloomington because it is such a small community and maybe it takes creating more support for people to enter farming rather than necessarily just increasing people's projects already. It's really hard to just jump in. Yeah, and I would say that because of the isolation not only of farming but of the size of the community in the area, it would be interesting to use Hoosier Young Farmer Coalition's network to meet people like in the greater area of Indiana. So we're, we're actually scheduling a visit soon to Indianapolis to meet the people behind Flanner Farms. So, yeah, I think there is a big need to connect outside of the town and I mean, Hoosier Young Farmers brought my attention to like the the Jamersons and some other BIPOC farmers in the state. And yeah, it's. I think it's going to be really important for all of us to, to stand together, even if we're separated by a few hours.
1: Thank you both so much. I really appreciate this. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. This has been a really awesome time here.
5: Yeah, thank you.
0: That was Enrique Hernandez in conversation with Ash Tang in the WFIU studios. They're recipients of the 2023 Beginning Farmers Fellowship through the Hoosier Young Farmers Coalition. We have links to more information about the program on our website, eartheats.org. That's it for our show this week. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Earth Eats team includes Violet Barron, Ayoban Binder, Alex Chambers, Mark Chilla, Toby Foster, Abraham Hill, Daniela Richardson, Samantha Schemenauer, Peyton Whaley, and Harvest Public Media. Special thanks this week to Brock Hammond, Liz Brownlee, Nick Garza, Marie O'Neill, Ash Tang, Enrique Hernandez, and Shauna Poveda. The show is produced and edited by me, Kate Young. Our theme music is composed by Aaron Toby and performed by Aaron and Matt Toby. Additional music on the show comes to us from Universal Production Music. Our executive producer is John Bailey.